Well, good morning. Welcome to Salem Chapel. Uh, if you're new with us, my name is Johnny Pereira. If you're watching us online, I'm so glad that you are uh, with us as well. Uh, man, we are indeed excited about these opportunities with the Make and Mobilize initiative, with the opportunities to expand our campus and renovate our campus, to be able to just maximize the opportunities that we have here, to be intentional with our space. You know, if you're new at Salem Chapel, we say this often, that the mission is not the facilities of this place. We really see facilities as a, as a vehicle so that the mission can be accomplished in greater ways. And so, by God's grace, we have a track record of that here at Salem Chapel. And so, we're excited about the ways that the Lord already has provided and the opportunity He's given all of us to be a part of that as well. Some of you have been asking, uh, where are we in relation to that $100,000 goal? Like, we haven't gone old school and put the thermometer in the lobby. Some of you know what I'm talking about, um, but uh, Aaron will give an update um, as he comes and closes our service of, of where we're at and, uh, and then what we need um, to meet that goal, and I know that the Lord is going to do that. Uh, turning your Bibles to 1 Samuel 13, as you're turning there, let me just remind us, I don't think you need to be reminded, um, but 3.30 and 5 o'clock are a Christmas Eve service. They're identical services. Um, and if you are in town, I encourage you to be here. Our Christmas Eve services are always a little bit different. Um, they're more uh, video driven. We're going to have children up here from Salem Kids singing. Uh, we'll end in a candlelight, uh, ending with candlelight. And it is going to be an amazing time. And hopefully that's become a part of your tradition if you're in town and you call this place your home. We also have invite cards. Uh, just front and back of our Christmas Eve service. Encourage you to grab these at the Welcome Center to hand those out to anybody that you may know of that doesn't have a place to worship on Christmas Eve. And then let me also say, uh, man, I encourage you to grab a reading plan if you haven't already. This is going to help you so much as we walk through this series, Give Us a King in 1 Samuel. So if you do have one of these and you are following along, then you would have already read the passage of Scripture that we are looking at today in 1 Samuel 13. We always have you read ahead. We encourage you to use our Bible reading tool or another way that you may have to read scripture so that when you come into this place, you are already prepared because God has already said to you through his word how he wants you to apply this scripture to your life. And then we have the opportunity to open up God's word together in that passage of scripture as well. And so obviously this week is no different. So 1 Samuel 13, let me just tell you, sometimes we have a lot of verses on the screen and yes, we will do that. But I want you to have 1 Samuel 13 opened up, whether that's on your lap with an actual Bible, whether that's on your phone or tablet or whatever it is, I want you to see what God has to say to you today. Okay, and, uh, and so I know that the Lord is going to speak because that's what he does when his word is open. Let me give you a little bit of context as far as where we will find ourselves. We're actually going to start reading in verse 5 this morning here in just a moment. But let me set the stage because for time, we don't have time to read the entire chapter of 1 Samuel 13. But what we find in verse 1 is that Saul has ruled Israel for two years. It actually says in verse 1, Saul lived for one year and then became king and he reigned for two years over Israel. So that doesn't mean that Saul was one year old, obviously. But what that means is, is that it's been one year since Samuel and Saul met. 
a year took place, and then Saul is anointed king, and he's recognized as king, and so Saul has officially been serving in the capacity as king for two years. And where we find ourselves in 1 Samuel 13 is there is this battle that's about to be waged. It's actually played out in 1 Samuel 14, but in 1 Samuel 13, what we find is, is Saul is described as having 3,000 troops in his army, which I don't know about you, but if you read this, I was like, man, that's not a lot. But he has 3,000. Here he has 2,000 of his troops with him, and he's in Michmash, which you want to remember that because that's where this battle is going to take place in 1 Samuel 14. But he has 2,000 of his men at that location. And then Jonathan, his son, has another 1,000 troops with him, and Jonathan is spoken of as being in Gibeah. Now, Jonathan goes on this covert ops I imagine it being like in our modern day Navy SEALs operation and he takes out the garrison of the Philistines. Garrison meaning governor. So there's some type of assassination that takes place that Jonathan uh, has the ability to be able to, to kill this garrison of the Philistines. Saul says to all of Israel, look at what we've done. But there's a problem. The Philistines have been the arch nemesis of the children of Israel. We'll continue to see that throughout the book of 1 Samuel. The problem is, is the Philistines are almost like this big bear. You ever heard that phrase, don't poke the bear? Like don't agitate the person who can literally wipe you out. And in many ways, that's what's happening here. The Philistines have been ruling in this area. And up to this point, they've been tolerating Israel. But as soon as Jonathan takes out one of these governors, the garrison of the Philistines, all of a sudden now they are out for blood. They are ready to wipe these people out. And that's where we find ourselves in verse 5. Look at verse 5. And we're actually going to read all the way down through verse 13. It says, And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. Like they are ready. Look at, look at all, the, all of what they assemble. 30,000 chariots. 6,000 horsemen, so that's their cavalry, and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They came up and they encamped in Michmash to the east of Bethaven. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, like understatement of the chapter, right? For the people were hard pressed, like they're surrounded. The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. I don't know about you, but that's crazy. Like, you know you're afraid when you're hiding yourself in a massive water jug. You're afraid. Verse 7. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad. So some Israelites just, just got out of there. But Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Now look at verse 8. He, speaking of Saul, waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. So let's just stop there. If we remember, in 1 Samuel chapter 10, one of the things that Samuel instructs Saul to do is to wait for seven days for him at Gilgal, and Samuel will come, and he will offer a burnt offering and a peace offering before Saul goes to battle the Philistines. So he's instructed this in 1 Samuel chapter 10. So when you come to verse 8, and it seems like, well, that's a weird left turn transition. Why did he wait seven days? Well, that's why. But Samuel, look at what it says, did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. So Samuel evidently doesn't show up on time. 
So what's Saul's response? Well, verse 9. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he, Saul, offered the burnt offerings. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Ain't that the way it always works? Can we just be real? Like, okay, Lord, I need to obey. I need to obey. I need to obey. I need to obey. Okay. It's not happening the way that I want. I'm going to disobey. And then boom. I just would have waited. I could just imagine, I don't know, maybe my mind's different than yours. I just, I read into this and like Samuel comes and Saul's like, it would have been great, Samuel, if this would have happened five minutes ago. But look at what happens. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, we read that, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, well, when I saw that the people were scattering for me and that you did not come within the days appointed, like, Samuel, you were late. I don't know if he came like at 10 o'clock at night on the seventh day. But when you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash like all of the 30,000 chariots and 6,000 cavalry and troops like the sand of the seashore, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. I'm reading from verse 12. And I have not sought the favor of the Lord. Like I need the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Here's the title of the message this morning. When obeying God seems foolish. When obeying God seems foolish. I just want to pray, take a moment for you to pray as I pray out loud. And I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to take a long time doing this, but here's why I want us to do this. Because in a crowd this size, here's what I know. Some of you are faced with a decision and you know where the Lord wants you to obey but you're struggling because obedience seems foolish. It seems foolish. It doesn't make sense. Maybe it's in terms of a relationship. Maybe it's in terms of finances. Maybe it's in terms of some other circumstance. You're like, I know what God's word says. I know what he's done. But I am struggling to obey because it seems like utter foolishness. If that's you, and the reality is it's probably most of us, I just want us to stop, and I want you to pray to the Lord and say, Lord, would you speak to me through your word and help me to see that obeying you is a wise thing, not a foolish thing. Can we do that? Let's pray. Lord, as, as people talk to you right now, obedience so often is hard. Because we look out and we see odds are stacked against us. We're looking at circumstances. We're struggling to see where you're working. And even though we know what your word says, and even though it's maybe even been confirmed through other people or through other signs, we're still struggling to believe that it's wisdom. And Lord, I know that when your word is open, your mouth is open. That's what we know. That's not just what we say here at Salem Chapel. It's what your word says. And so, Lord, help us to have ears open to how you want to confirm 
in that very situation that seems foolish to obey, that you're in control, that it's wise, and that you can be trusted. In Jesus' name, amen. Normally, I have one idea that we really want to unpack in, in, in a passage of Scripture that we're looking at. This is a little bit different. I actually have two. I really have two main ideas in regards to obeying the Lord. And here's the first one. And we just, this comes from verses 8 through 12 that we just read. That obeying God's instruction often appears foolish when we face adverse circumstances pragmatically pragmatically. So I don't know what the adverse circumstance that you may be facing right now. Obviously, we know what Saul was facing. We just read it. But obedience often appears foolish when we're approaching that adverse circumstance pragmatically. What do I mean pragmatically? Pragmatically in the sense what that word means, if you're not familiar with it, is you're approaching it logically. Like, what makes logical sense? And can I just say, for those of you who are newer, let me just say something about myself. You will not meet a more pragmatic person than me. Like, I think logically about things. Like, when when I'm thinking, okay, how do we fix this? Okay, give me the scenarios. What makes sense? Like, I'm very pragmatic. and, And that necessarily isn't a bad thing, but it can be often when I'm faced with a choice to obey the Lord. Because so often, so often obedience to the Lord doesn't make sense. I want to give you three reasons why obeying God's instruction often appears foolish. And for many of you, we're going to be, we're going to be preaching to the choir, so to speak, okay? But let me give you three reasons. And I see these on how Saul approaches the choice to obey or disobey in regards to how he whether he waits for Samuel or whether he doesn't. But by the way, let me say, I don't know about you, but I were, when I read 1 Samuel 13, I was very sympathetic to Saul. Anybody else like that? Yeah. Because you're like, well, the poor guy already only has 3,000 troops against 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. And, and, and the Lord only knows the amount of troops. All we know is they're like the sand of the sea. Like, and he's got the odds stacked against them. And the poor guy's waiting there all of this length of time. And we don't know exactly when Samuel shows up on the seventh day. But it's to the point that Saul doesn't think that he's coming. And so he takes matters into his own hands. And if you're like me, I look at that passage of scripture like I would have done the same thing. But that's because we approach things pragmatically. It's how you approach them. That's how I approach them. So why does obeying God's instruction often appear foolish? Here's the first reason. Because we only see the enormity of the circumstance. That's what our eyes are focused on. We only see the enormity of it. The enormity is what I just mentioned that's mentioned in verses 5 through 7 in the size of the Philistine army. That's the enormity of the circumstance. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're, you're like, man, I... Johnny, you read my mind like there's this decision that I need to make and I know what obedience looks like, but I'm struggling to obey. Well, chances are because you're seeing the enormity of this circumstance. And I don't say that in a way to cast judgment on you. I say that because that's our natural reaction. Here's the second reason. We want God's timetable to be on our terms. It's what I desire. It's what we desire. Do you know what I've also found? God's timetable rarely makes sense. Now I'm going to say what I've often said to the Lord. 
when I've been in the face of adverse circumstances. And then you raise your hand whether or not you've said this as well. So I'm already letting you know I've said it, all right? So if you raise your hand, there's no shame in this place because if there is, then I'm getting all the shame, okay? But I've said this, God, why can't your timetable be today? Anybody else like that? Okay, every hand should be raised. I've thought that so many times. Like, yes, Lord, I've looked in the past and I can reflect and I can see how waiting on you and your timetable worked out and the lessons that I learned and the way that my faith was grown. Yes, 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 yes. But in this situation, can it please be today? But so often it's not. So often it's not. And I just think of Saul in this situation. Like he's got a measly 3,000 men and then everybody else is hiding in caves and in holes and walls and in, in tombs and in big massive cisterns that hold water. I mean, they're looking at everywhere to hide. It's like a massive hide and seek, but they don't want to be found. And then Saul's there with 3,000 men and he sees this army that's encamped all around him. And he's like, okay, one, okay, seven days. I think we can make it seven days. I think I got enough rep with the people of Israel that they'll trust me for seven days. And one day goes by and two days goes by. Can you imagine? I can only imagine having to rally all of these people people to trust him. But as we read, they slowly start peeling off. And Saul's faced, Saul's faced with a choice. God, do I trust your timetable? Or do I start thinking about what a plan B looks like? And when I've thought about waiting on the Lord and the amount of times in the scriptures that it says wait on the Lord, I thought, you know when it's hardest to wait? It's hardest to wait when the weight of the circumstance is enormous. That's when it's the hardest to wait. And I can't wait without trusting God. I can't wait for God's timetable without trusting God. But here's the reality, and I want to say it because we've all thought it, that trusting God often goes against every instinct in you, in me. It goes against every evidence often because we can't see it. It goes against every aspect of experience maybe in that moment. Regardless of what we've experienced in God's deliverance in the past, we can always say, yeah, but this is different. But why don't we obey God's instruction and why do we often view it as foolish? Well, we see the enormity of the circumstance. We want God's timetable to be on our terms. But here's, here's the third reason. We want to be in control. We want to be in control. Why do I say that? Can we look at verses 9 through 12 again? And I want, to, I want you to see how many times Saul utters these words, me or I. I'll give you a spoiler. Five times in verses 9 through 12, he utters the words, me or I. Can we look at it together? Saul says this, okay, God, your timetable's not jiving with mine, so bring the burnt offering and the peace offering. We'll explain the significance of the burnt offering here in a second in case you're wondering. Bring the burnt offering and the peace offering to me. And then he says to Samuel, well, Samuel, people were scattering from me. The Philistines will come down against me. I don't know about you, but that struck me. I'm like, wait a minute, it ain't just you, bro. And so however many thousands are left up to this point, and what we find is, is by the time Samuel shows up, he only has 600 men. 
The rest of them like went to the caves and the holes and the cisterns with everybody else. So it's just about you. But he says, none of the Philistines are going to come against me. And then he says this, well, the reason why I, I did this and I, I, I took control is because I have not sought the Lord's favor like I want the Lord's favor. I realize I need the Lord in this. And then the last phrase he says there in verses 9 through 12, at the end of verse 12, so I forced myself. That's such a significant phrase. I underline that in my Bible. I forced myself and I offered the burnt offering. Here's the significance of the burnt offering. It's different than any other offering that the children of Israel offered. Because when they took a burnt offering, they took an animal and that entire animal was consumed by fire. And because the entire animal was consumed by fire, what that symbolized was a total commitment to the Lord in whatever you were about to go into. By the way, peace offering was just a sign that, Lord, we need you to intervene in this situation. But Paul, Saul doesn't even get to offering the peace offering because right after he offers the burnt offering, that's when Samuel shows up. But the burnt, offer, burnt offering symbolized complete commitment to the Lord in what you were about to do. Now think about that. Saul's posture to want to take control of the situation actually contradicted what the sacrifice meant because it wasn't total commitment. Saul said to himself, I'm going to force myself into this situation and by the way, God, I want you to bless it. You don't need to raise your hand in this. I'll raise my hand for me and for you. How many times have we forced our agenda onto a situation? God damn, the circumstance is enormous. Your timetable, man, you, I, 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 gave you, I gave you a timetable, God, and I'm gonna determine when you're late. And when you're late, I'm going to take control. But at the same time, I know I need your intervention. So, Lord, I want you to bless when I force my agenda onto you. My goodness. I think of the times that I've done that in my life. And I wonder why so often I don't see that blessing in that decision that I made. It's because I forced myself. I wanted to be in control. That agenda was driven by I and me. It was all over it, just like it's all over the pages of Scripture here. But the reality is the wisdom to obey the Lord, the eyes to see that obedience is the wise choice, it's the best choice, it's the good choice, that that conclusion so often cannot be arrived if we are operating pragmatically. But here's the second idea I want you to see. Obeying God's instruction is seen as wisdom. When you, when I, when we face adverse circumstances, not pragmatically, but with God's promises. Because look at the end of verse 13 when Samuel really chastises Saul. He says, Saul, why did you do this? The Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Saul, why were you so short-sighted? 
Why did you just approach this pragmatically rather than with God's promises? Why didn't you remind yourself of all the things that happened up to this point that God in his grace showed you that he could be trusted? But you didn't make this decision in light of his promises. The Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. You know what that literally is saying? It's saying, Saul, if you just would have obeyed the Lord in light of his promises, your line would have been the line that the Messiah would have come. That's the idea. But unfortunately, Saul made the wrong choice. He made the pragmatic choice rather than making a choice of trust that was shaped by God's promises. So why? Just like I answered in terms of why obeying God's instruction often appears foolish, let's ask this question. Why do God's promises help you, help me see obedience as the wise choice in the face of adverse circumstances? Well, there's also three reasons there as we look at where Saul, what Saul experienced and what Saul was told up to this point that we find ourselves in 1 Samuel 13. Here's the first reason. Because God's promises testify that God's presence is with you. God's promises testified to, to Saul that God's presence was with him. Let me show you why. These are on the screen, so we don't have time to turn there, so you can just look on the screen. 1 Samuel 10.1 this so is what Samuel says to Saul. Saul, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people, Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you shall save them from the hand of the surrounding enemies. Like he's been anointed, which symbolizes the presence of the Holy Spirit on his life. Like Saul, remember, you've been anointed. God is saying, You're, you are his man, and you've been given a mission to protect Israel, to rule over Israel. 1 Samuel 10, 6 and 7 says this. He also says, Samuel says this to Saul. Saul, here's the words of the Lord to you. Here's how you can know that he's with you. The spirit of the Lord is gonna rush upon you and you will prophesy with them. Those other leaders, those prophets, and, and be turned into another man. Saul, God is with you. What's Samuel doing? He's affirming to Saul that God's presence is going to be with him. Then you go to 1 Samuel 10, 9, and it says, God gave him, Saul, another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. God said it, and he delivered on it, and the reason why he did is because he wanted Saul to understand that God made a promise with him that he was going to be with him every step of the way. And the same is true with you and me. Listen to me. God's presence is with you this morning. If you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, his presence is with you. He wants you to remember that. He wants you to remember the times in the past that he has made that abundantly clear. He wants you to have the faith to trust it in the present, even when you can't see it, even when you can't feel it, even when everything in you is wanting to approach it pragmatically and say, no, 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 I need to be in control. Your timetable doesn't jive with mine. You, don't you see the enormity of the circumstance? And what God's promise is saying to you today is, I'm with you. But we've got to remember it. 
And even saying that phrase, you've got to remember it. I hope you feel the weight of that. And even if you're coming to a place, yeah, Johnny, I know I'm supposed to remember it. But so often I don't. But see, that's the beauty. Because when you can't remember it, Jesus says that you have a helper who will help you remember. Listen to Jesus' words, John 14, 6. He says to his disciples, and he says it to you and me today, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, capital H, to be with you forever. That's the Holy Spirit, by the way. Verse 26, and he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. In those times when you're struggling to remember, in those times where you don't have faith to remember, in those times where you're struggling with all of your might to want to see obedience as wisdom rather than foolishness, we're told by Jesus that we have a helper, the Holy Spirit, who doesn't rush upon us and leave us like the Old Testament, who is, but who is with us forever. Did you see that in John 14? Forever. I got a terrible memory. Can I just say that? I have a terrible memory. And sadly, my memory reflects my selfishness because I have no problem remembering the things that I think are important. I just remember all the things and I'm like, yeah, I don't have the hard drive space for that. I forget so much. I am terrible with directions. If you've been here, you know I've, I've given illustrations that I won't give this morning for lack of time. There's so many things that I don't remember, including the times that God has shown me that he's right there with me every step of the way. But I am so thankful that there's been so many times in my life where my helper has reminded me of what is true. He's obviously done that as I've opened up his word. And I've taken my experience to him. And I'm like, Lord, this is what's going on. Lord, I want to read your word. Lord, would you speak? What have you said? What have I heard? What do I need to do in response and obedience? But there's also been times where God has brought along someone to encourage me and to speak truth into my life and to remind me of what I need to remember. There's been times where I've been in the car and I'm all of a sudden, I don't, I mean, I don't normally listen to messages. I know that that seems like a shock to you, but normally I don't. And, and there'll just be times and I'll be like, you know, I don't know why, but I'm going to listen into this radio station that's got preaching all the time and I'll hear something and it'll just, it just remind me of what I know to be true. And it's almost like that, that particular speaker preaching on the radio is speaking or podcast or YouTube video or whatever it is. What's my point? You have a helper, the Holy Spirit, who is constantly telling you, I'm with you. I'm with you. God's promises can be trusted because I'm your helper. I'm with you. Why do God's promises help your obedience in the face of adverse circumstance, here's the second reason. Because God's promises testify that God's power will work through you. As much as we feel sorry for Saul in this passage of Scripture in 1 Samuel 13, and I admit it, I did as much as you did. We've also got to remind ourselves of, of how God has prepared, been preparing him up to this point. He's shown him over and over again that his presence was with him, but he's also shown him over and over again what happens when his power works through Saul. Look at 1 Samuel 11, verses 6 and 11. It says on the screen, And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. Remember, he's about to battle the Ammonites. 
who, by the way, remember Israel was about to make a treaty for everybody to gouge out their right eye. They thought that that might be a good idea. But the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon Saul, and what does it say? His anger was greatly kindled. He became someone that he was not naturally. Became brave. When, as we've seen already, Saul was anything but brave. But the Spirit did that through Saul. Look at verse 11. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies and they came in the midst of the camp in the morning watch and they struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day and those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. What's my point? Saul saw when God's power works through him what can happen. God was preparing Saul to trust him in the next adverse circumstance that came. When obedience seems foolish. And what I've found, not only in my life, but so many people that I've talked to, is that we have a tendency to underestimate the power of God that is working in you and me. Because we categorize what, pow- what God's power looks like. We're like, well, I haven't had a parting of the Red Sea moment in my life, so God's power must not be working through me. I haven't had a crossing the, Red sea, the Jordan River moment in my life. I haven't had a feeding of the 5,000 with my little five loaves and two fishes that I've given to God proverbially. And so we think, well, God's power is not working through me. And you're overwhelmed by this adverse circumstances and you're struggling to believe that God can be trusted, that his promises are true, that his presence is with you, that his power can work through you. But can I tell you this morning, if that's you this morning and you're struggling with that and you even gave that to the Lord, can I encourage you? You're here today. That's an evidence that God's power is working through you. Because you didn't run, you made a choice to be here today. You made a choice to watch online today. You made a choice to listen to me as you're riding in your car later on in the week. And that's not to listen to me. That's because God wants to remind you that his power is at work in you. Philippians 1.6, it says that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. What that means is until my time is up and I'm with Jesus and I leave this world, his power is constantly working in me to make me into someone that I would not normally be and do I have bad days yep absolutely and do I have good days every so often but I need to look at my life and say Lord I'm here today I'm breathing today I'm in your word today am I struggling yes But that is a testament that God is at work in you. And the enemy wants you to disregard and diminish the power of the Holy Spirit that is working in you right now. Do not do it. Because if you are hearing that in your head, that's not from the Lord, that's from the enemy. I'm going to put a passage of scripture on the screen that's so well known, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. But for those of you that don't know it, Here's the context. Paul, not Saul, but Paul in the New Testament, who was radically changed when he was on his way to kill Christians. And Jesus met him in a grand light and changed his life forever. And he goes on to plant churches all over the known world. There was something that he was constantly praying for God to deliver him from. We don't know what it was. But he writes these words and what the Holy Spirit said to him. He says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. 
For my power is made perfect in weakness. That word perfect means complete. In other words, what Paul is saying is, is the more and more I embrace my weakness, the more and more I'm able to see the significance of God's power at work in my life. I have a tendency to diminish it less and less and to appreciate it more and more. And so what is the conclusion then? Well, therefore, because I'm understanding this in a greater way, even though I want the Lord to remove this adverse circumstance in my life, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Lord, instead of hiding my weaknesses, instead of feeling ashamed of my weaknesses, Lord, I'm going to embrace them because I understand that the power of Christ rests upon me in the greatest when I'm the weakest. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content. It doesn't mean like, hey, I can't wait for these things to come into my life. But he's saying, I am not shaken and rattled to the point of disobedience, but rather I'm content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. Could we say this morning, adverse circumstances? Because he understands us. When I am weak, then I am strong. I wonder this morning in your struggle, in the enormity of this circumstance, in the waiting for God to intervene, in the temptation to want to take control and to force yourself on the situation, I wonder if you just stop, as Psalm 46 says, and be still. Which if you've ever tried that is the most active thing you can ever possibly do. Just stop. And to say, Lord, would the helper that lives inside of me remind me that you're with me in this? Would the helper that you've given me in the Holy Spirit remind me that you're at work in me? Even when I can't see it, even when I can't feel it, even when it doesn't make pragmatic sense. But Lord, help me to understand it's in that place, that place of weakness, that place of vulnerability, that place of admission, that the Lord wants, me to, wants to show me how strong he is how powerful he is and how he's working in me. Here's the third reason. Why do God's promises help your obedience in the face of adverse circumstances? This was true of Saul. It's true of you and me. God's promises testify that he will provide for you. He'll provide for you. Let's just once again go and see what the Lord was doing to prepare Saul for this moment that he knew he would be in that would test whether or not he was gonna be obedient to what God had said, 1 Samuel 12, 14 through 18, Samuel addresses Israel, but he also addresses Saul in this moment. He says, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. Are you going to have battles? Yes. Are you going to have adversity? Yes. Are you going to be tested? Yes. But obedience to God is always the best choice. Verse 15, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore, stand still 
and see the great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Before I read in verse 17, here's what's interesting. The Lord's gonna give instruction to the people of Israel through Samuel. But God in his grace and in his mercy, you know what he does? He says, I'm just gonna provide for you yet again just in case you're still struggling to doubt. It says, verse 17, is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourself a king. What's the wickedness? They forgot. They went pragmatic. So Samuel called upon the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. In other words, all the people were reminded by the Lord providing rain which allowed their crops to grow, that in his provision, they were reminded once again that their God is a God who provides. And the ways that we want him to all the time, I wish that was the case, but not. But just because he doesn't provide in the way that you're asking him doesn't mean that he doesn't provide. Matthew 7, 11 says this. These are Jesus' words. He says, if you then who are evil, in other words, sinful by nature, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? How many of you got your Christmas shopping completely done? Raise your hand. You need to raise it. You should be very proud. Okay, that's like 20 people out of the entire crowd. You know what that means? This week, you're going to buy a lot of gifts. Maybe you were already somewhere at 10 a.m. when the stores opened before you came to church at 11 this morning. I have no idea. But you know what I found? When you have little kids, Christmas is on a whole nother level because it's just awesome to see their faces. And some of you right now, I don't know, school just got out. You know, what I've found when our kids were really little is this is the hardest time for your kids to be obedient to you. And so some of you have tried every other gospel parenting technique and you've just resorted to threatening, right? If you don't obey, you're getting nothing for Christmas, but I don't know how many kids we got in here. I'm looking at the crowd. We don't have many in here, so I can say this. You know you ain't delivering on that threat. You know you ain't. Why? Because you want to give good gifts to your kids. Listen, the amount of times that I've disciplined my kids out of anger, don't judge me because you've done it too. The amount of times that I've done that, the amount of times that I've had to come, go to them and say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me, is more times than I can remember. What's the point? Man, I am not a perfect father but I'm gonna give good gifts to my kids. And Jesus' point is, if that's our desire, then why will we not trust that we have a perfect Father who promises to provide for you and me? Yeah, maybe one of those gifts that we were like, I didn't want this. But our Heavenly Father who loves us know that that's what we need in that moment. My point is this. God's promises testify to his provision for you and me. And every time I look, every week as I study the chapters that we're going to be teaching on, I'm reminded that my heart 
so often cries, give me a king. This is not working out. That's not working out. This situation that I see is not working out. Whatever it is, Lord, I want a king. I want someone who's going to bring deliverance from this. And I'm reminded every week and every day that I read this book in 1 Samuel that Jesus has come as my king. And he chose this broken and sinful world that is so hard to navigate, let's just be honest, But by God's grace, we have his promises to help us navigate. We have his presence and we have his power and we have his provision to help us in the midst of the struggle. But that's only because we have a king. And if your heart's asking for that right now, can we remind ourselves that we already have him and his name is Jesus. Hebrews 4, 15 and 15. 14 and 15, or 15 and 16 says this, for we do not have a high priest. We do not have a leader who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows how we act. He knows our tendency to be pragmatic. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, but praise God we have a king that did not succumb to the temptation. Was he God? Could he sin? No, he couldn't sin because he was God. But he subjected himself to the temptation so that we would have a king who could sympathize with what we were going through. So what's our response? Well, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know when I read that, you know what that reminds me of? There's going to be times where I make the foolish choice. But because I have a king who lived perfection for me and died on the cross for my sins and rose again three days later and my trust is in him for my salvation, that foolish choice does not mean that I cannot come to my king with confidence because I can come to my king with confidence knowing that there's not judgment at his throne, there's mercy and grace. To say, Lord, I made the foolish choice here, forgive me. But Lord, help me to be reminded next time to make the wise choice. Can we just in this moment, I just want us to stop and I just want us to pray just to have some quietness before we sing this last song. And I want us to take what you took to the Lord when we started this message. And I want you to just talk to him. And ask him to be your helper in the place that you're struggling to obey. Can we do that? Let's do that and then I'll pray. Lord, we know in our head that obedience to you is is a wise choice. But our heart so often says otherwise. 
Lord, so often the enormity of this situation, the waiting that you ask us to do, the desire to want to control overtakes us. And we do what any person would do who doesn't have a relationship with you. We just approach life the best that we know how, pragmatically in the way that we know best. And, but you've called us to a life of faith, Lord. You've called us to a place of trust. But you haven't left us to do that blindly. And Lord, this time of year and really every day, no matter what time of year it is, but Lord, this time of year, we especially remember that a king has come. You entered into our broken and sinful world, into the things that so often beset us, and you came to bring hope. Lord, I thank you for your presence that is with us every step of the way. I thank you for your power that is working within us, even when we minimize and diminish it. And Lord, I thank you that you provide. So God, would you give us eyes to see, faith to trust, and believe, even when it doesn't make sense, that obedience to you is always the best choice. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us this morning?